0: Some of you I haven't seen yet this year, so Happy New Year to some of you, and uh, it's a, a fantastic time for us to be together this morning and dive into God's Word together again. We're back in Mark this morning, and it's been so helpful for me to be shepherded by Kenny's worship set that has reoriented my heart and my mind back again to this truth that I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul and life and death to God. I've had one of those weeks that's really reinforced that, you know, the, the scripture that Kenny put up on the screen just shortly before this last song uh, reminded us that our, though our outer self is wasting away, I had one of those weeks where I was bombarded day by day by day that that is the truth, that our bodies are frail and there's all sorts of bodily afflictions around us. I went to work on Monday morning came home and my son Jesse was riding the couch ill struck down with the flu like many of you perhaps have have suffered with in your homes recently or if not now or not Tom's not here I presume he's still out right still out. yeah so the flu is having its way with our bodies and and I went to uh, a managers meeting at Biola on Tuesday and before we started the meeting we just shared personal prayer requests around the conference room table and thing after thing every one of them had the commonality of our bodies are wasting away right one one of our employees had a 17-year-old son who was in the hospital fighting for his life. Another one had a, a daughter-in-law who was carrying twins but having a hard time carrying them to full term. So she's on bed rest. And the list just goes on and on. Disability for one thing or another. Our bodies are frail. right? They're, our outer self is wasting away. And we need these truths that we're not our own. That there's more to our, our life than what we see on a daily basis. So then I began to think about what's going on with our little Fullerton congregation. And you all know what it's like to suffer with bodily things too. We've had stuff like allergies and vertigo and pneumonia and you name it, tumors and cancer and all these other things that each one of us, either personally or through extended family, we know what it's like to Suffer with these bodily afflictions. And today, as we turn to Mark chapter 3, we see a people who are suffering with these very same things. And we see them come and move toward Jesus because they've heard about who he is. And they just know in themselves that if they could just personally touch Jesus, that he could make them well. And so, as we are thinking about our own circumstances this morning and then myself included, as we are faced with the frailty of our human bodies. Let's open up to Mark chapter 3 and take a look at this passage that shows us a crowd of people coming to Jesus. Coming to look to Him for some healing. So I've I've titled this sermon The Personal Touch of Jesus. And that's going to be a a key phrase for us this morning. So as we prepare to read through this passage, let's keep that in our minds, the personal touch of Jesus. It'll it'll become important to us. And let's read through it and ask the Spirit now to lead us and guide us and teach us what we need to learn this morning. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are humbled. Um, At all these rich spiritual truths that we have been singing about and reminding ourselves of this morning, that we are not our own, we've been bought with a price, and that our eternity is secure in Christ, Lord. We are grateful for that. And we've just asked you to be our vision, we've asked you to be our highest thought. And to lead us and guide us through life. So would you please do that? Would you do that now? Would you send forth your spirit to fill each one of us, to give us ears to hear, to teach us this morning what you want us to learn? Would you give us eyes to see circumstances and situations and people the way that you do? And would you help us to grow in our faith today? Um, I just thank you and I praise you that you make this possible through the ministry of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray against the spiritual forces of darkness. We ask that you would bind them, that you would cast them out from this place, and that you would render their sinister ministry ineffective, and that you would be the only one of influence in our hearts and our minds right now and through the rest of the day. We ask this humbly in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3, and we'll begin reading at verse 7. And today's passage follows on the heels of the conflict stories. We began seeing these in chapter 2 as Jesus was in his home preaching and teaching the word. And these four guys brought the paralytic to him and he healed him. And um, he was accused by the Pharisees of blaspheming because he declared the paralytic's sins forgiven. That was the first conflict. And it just escalated from there until chapter 3 verse 6. It says, and the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. So there is increasing conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And that's where we pick this passage up in verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So it's on the heels of this conflict that today's passage starts, and Jesus withdrew with his disciples. Mark only uses this word here, this word withdrew. He only uses it here, but when when Matthew uses it, he most often uses it in connection with a change of location in order to attempt to avoid some unfavorable situation or circumstances. For instance, we just came out of our Advent series, and two weeks ago Tom preached about the wise men who were supernaturally (laughs) redirected home to their own country by another way. And Matthew, as he describes that, he said that the wise men withdrew to their own country by another way using this same word. Similarly, Joseph and Mary and Jesus withdrew to Egypt in order to flee the danger of Herod. And on the way back, Joseph and their family withdrew from Judea into Galilee in fear of Herod's son. So that's how they came to to dwell in Nazareth. They were withdrawing from the circumstances that were there in Bethlehem. So Jesus leaves this location this location of much activity and much conflict with the religious leaders. And we get the sense that it was time for a retreat. On the heels of much ministry, on the heels of much conflict, we get the sense that it's time for Jesus to withdraw. And that's what the text tells us He's doing. He's withdrawing, but He withdraws with His disciples. And it would have been a perfect plan, right? A perfect plan at the, on the heels of a a time of serious activity and ministry to withdraw and to become reflect, refreshed. But then the text tells us that the problems followed him. <laughs> it says, and a great crowd followed. Now Mark has talked about the crowd before. It was a, it was a crowd that was gathered in Jesus' house when he healed the paralytic. It was a, all the crowd was gathered um, when he ends up calling Levi, the tax collector, to follow him. But here, Mark says this is the great crowd. He's now using a word to describe and modify this crowd that gives us a sense that it is really a very large crowd. And he tells us the region from which these people are coming. It's a vast region. And you can see on the map here, Um, Some of the cities that are named, Tyre is up in the upper left, so that's the northern region. Sidon is actually off the map, up halfway between the top of the screen and our roof. Idumea is down on the the, uh, lower portion of the map. And then the Transjordan would be over to the right, across the Jordan. So in other words, this whole map represents this region from where these people are coming. This crowd is coming from this vast region. Now this region is about 150 miles north to south, which would be roughly the same thing as Pasadena to Tijuana. And it's about 60 to 70 miles east and west, which would be the same thing probably as Torrance to Riverside. So that's a pretty broad area, and this area is densely populated. So it's a large area of densely populated folks that are coming and gathering That are following Jesus as he and his disciples are trying to withdraw. So despite the growing conflict with the religious leaders and their disdain for him, Jesus' fame with the common people is growing. He is celebrity status right now. And there are people flocking to him from all over the place. It's a vast region. And when the crowd heard all that he was doing, the text says, they came to him. So this crowd is coming to Him because they've heard. They've heard what Jesus is doing. They have heard that He's been preaching and teaching with authority that is uncommon to the others. They've heard that He's been casting out the unclean spirits, the demons. And they've heard that He has been healing various diseases. And that is exactly um, why this crowd has come. As we go through this passage, we'll be confronted with three different agendas. We will see the agenda of the crowd, we will see the agenda of the unclean spirits, and we will see the agenda of Jesus. So at first, let's dive in and take a look at the agenda of the great crowd. Verse 10 says, For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. So these people had, had seen Jesus in action. They had heard about him they had either seen and heard of it firsthand or they had had family members that had made him known or people that that had known them had made them known and it goes on and on. This is roughly the first century equivalent to something going viral on the internet. People have seen and heard something miraculous and marvelous about this Jesus and they have not stopped talking about it. And so this great crowd comes and they're coming, it says, Because they had heard what he had done. And they were all who had diseases. They pressed around him to touch him. These people knew in their minds that a personal touch of Jesus could bring them physical healing from the affliction that they were facing. And they they flocked to him. And the word that Mark uses here to describe the way they're approaching Jesus literally is they're, they're falling on him to touch him. The word that he uses here means that it's close up. It's personal language. There's definitely an invasion of intimacy here. These people are falling upon him. Luke uses this same word to to describe the the father of the prodigal son. And one of the songs that we sang in our worship set this morning made reference to it. That the the father of the prodigal son stands ready to welcome those to receive them but it's the father of the prodigal. When the prodigal returns, the father runs toward him and falls on him and receives him back. There's a warm and an intimate embrace. There's close proximity here. And Luke also uses this same word in Acts to describe what it, what it was like when the Spirit came. The Spirit had not yet fallen on the, upon these people. So it's, this is intimacy language that, that is being used here. And so we see that the agenda of the great crowd is to touch Jesus and to be healed. They know that if they could just touch Jesus, that they would be healed. And they were desperate. And they had a zeal for healing. They knew that Jesus could do it. And they were going to do whatever it would take to get themselves in proximity to Him so that they could touch Him and get what they needed. They had heard Him preach. They had seen Him Cast out the unclean spirits. But it was His healing power, according to this text, that draws this crowd here. They had been suffering with these infirmities. They were desperate. You get the sense that they had tried everything else, but they knew that none of that was working, but that if they could just get close to Jesus and get a personal touch of Jesus, that they would be healed. And they were so zealous in that, that there was danger. I remember when I was in college, I used to go to uh, a fair amount of concerts. Some, most of them were 80s hair bands, you know, like, like Poison and, and uh, other, other bands like that. But I, I used to get tickets that were general admission. So you would get in, you know, not, a, not an assigned seat, but you'd get in on the floor. And the, the goal was to get as close to the stage as you could in hopes that you could touch this person. But everybody behind you had that same goal, right? And, and everybody was pushing. And if you were up close to the stage, it, there's a fair, decent chance that you were going to get pressed pretty hard by that stage as the whole crowd was pushing in on you. And that's something akin to what's going on here. These people all want to get up close to Jesus and to touch him. They're falling upon him, literally, to, to get their hands on him. And this is a real enough threat to Jesus. He knows the intention of the crowd. Look at verse 9. He says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. These were a desperate people. They were fed up with their physical afflictions, and they were ready to do whatever it took to get their healing, even if it meant crushing Jesus in the process. I don't think they thought through this very well, right? Because if they... Kill the healer, that doesn't look good for them either. But anyway, that is the danger that is, that is before us right here. So this crowd included people who were afflicted with every sort of physical and spiritual and mental affliction. And even some of them, it says, were plagued with the disease of being oppressed by demons. Look at verse 11a. And whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, You are the Son of God. These demons had an an agenda of their own. And we see that they fall down before Jesus. This is clearly a posture of submission to Him. These, These unclean spirits recognize who Jesus is. And they appropriately bow down before Him. They fall prostrate before Him on the ground. And they shout out, You are the Son of God. Have you ever been watching a movie for the first time with somebody that's watched it a few times before? This last week in our home, um, Jesse decided it would be a good time to revisit the um, Harry Potter movies. So we gathered the DVD collection and began watching them over and over again. And his girlfriend, Leah, was over and had never seen them. So she was watching them. And at one point, my wife uh, blurted out when she saw Sirius Black on the screen and said, oh, isn't that Harry's godfather or something like that? (laughs) Spoiler alert. And. Which was the point of the deal because Jesse got so angry at his mother because she had spilled the beans, so to speak, right? What she had spoken was true. It's just that the timing of it and the messenger of it wasn't accurate. Well, that's what's going on here. These demons are speaking truth. They're falling down before Jesus, they're declaring him the Son of God, but Jesus silences them. He forbids them to make him known, not because they have it wrong. The message that they have spoken is the truth. And their posture before him is appropriate. In contrast to the crowd who was pressing upon him and falling upon him to touch him in order to get what they needed or wanted. These demons actually are demonstrating a little more level of respect and honor. By falling down before Jesus. And declaring him the son of God. So the agenda of the unclean spirits is to make Jesus known, which is an appropriate response. It's just that the timing of it was wrong and the messenger would be wrong. Jesus silenced them because he himself would deliver that message on the way to the cross. And we'll see that as we progress our way through this book, this book of Mark, in chapter 14 and verse 62. Jesus will declare himself the Son of God on his way to the cross. And in chapter 9, we see that some of the disciples go up on the mountain with Jesus, and they're present with Him at His transfiguration. And it's been revealed to them that He is the Son of God. And Jesus tells them, no, please don't make this known. The people aren't ready for this yet. He puts a gag order on them, but that gag order is only in effect until after He is raised from the dead. Once He is resurrected, that gag order is no longer in place. They are called to make His name known and to declare the truth of His identity. So here we have two different parties at the same location with two different agendas. We have the great crowd who's falling upon Jesus to touch Him and to be healed. And this makes sense considering their desperate situation, doesn't it? It makes sense that they have heard that Jesus is a healer and that they would flock to Him and come to Him. And they longed to receive the personal touch of Jesus which they knew in their heart and their mind would bring healing to them. And then in addition to that, we also have the unclean spirits and their agenda which is falling down before Jesus and crying out to make Him known. So having made a boat ready in order for Him to escape this pressure, if you will, the pressure of the crowd falling upon Him, This is a stressful situation that Jesus is in. We got the sense from Mark's use of the word, withdrew, that Jesus had withdrawn from that other stressful situation to get some downtime. But what happened was that there was no downtime. The crowd followed him. The great crowd followed him and fell upon him in order to get healing. And at this point, Mark doesn't tell us specifically that Jesus withdraws again from this situation. But we do see that he ends up going up on the mountain. Look with me at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. We get a sense that now Jesus once again is trying to withdraw, once again is trying to escape the crowds and get some downtime and to be refreshed. Withdrawing to the sea or to the lake didn't work very well because the great crowd followed him. So now we see Jesus going to the mountain. I love going to the mountains around here. Uh, there, there's a little less population up there. It's a little bit quieter, slower paced of life. I don't know if that's what Jesus was escaping to when He went up to the mountain, but it, our text tells us that He did go up to the mountain, and He called to Him those whom He desired. Luke's account of this makes a special point to say that Jesus went up on the mountain to pray, and He went there alone. And in Luke six twelve. Luke mentions that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer prior to proceeding with what we will see here in the text, which is next, of Jesus calling his 12 apostles unto himself. So in contrast to Luke, Mark does not include the detail about retreating to the mountain alone and spending the entire night in prayer. But what Mark does include is he gives us a detailed account of Jesus' agenda as he approaches the mountain and calls the 12 disciples unto himself. Look again with me at verses 13 through 15. And he Jesus went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So we see here a picture of Jesus calling to Him those whom He desired. We see here a picture of Jesus' humanity. We see human desires being manifested in this. And we also see this coupled with sovereign grace. None of these guys auditioned for the part. They did not prove their worth to Jesus and then Jesus select them from that. It's just The text just tells us that Jesus... Called to him those whom he desired, and he appointed twelve that they might be his apostles. None of these guys auditioned for the part. It wasn't anything that they brought to the table that Jesus looked at. Jesus assembled, if you will, a small group of people, a small, diverse group of people, and they were quite a motley crew. Some fishermen, a tax collector. Other people. And and what we see as we go through this book. Pay attention to these apostles. To these disciples. These were people that he wanted to spend time with. And they were really a group of knuckleheads. Over and over again. He'll be teaching the clear kingdom truths. And they won't get it. He'll pull them off to the side. And he'll explain it to them clearly. He'll, He'll spoon feed it to them. And again and again. They won't get it. They will fail the test of faith. They will doubt. They will fall asleep when He calls them to pray. One of them will betray Him. Peter will deny Him three times in one night. These guys were frail human beings. But they were the the ones that Jesus calls unto Himself... Do you see the intense personal nature of this? Jesus decided that he wanted these guys to be in close proximity with him. And he knew them by name. Look, he even gives them nicknames. Verse 16, he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he would give the name Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I don't know if this happens in your house, but it sure happens in my house. We give nicknames to one another. We do so because we love one another, right? And I get a sense as I read this list and hear that Jesus is taking these guys' given names and giving them some new names, giving them nicknames, if you will. That's showing a level of love and affection for these people. He's helping them understand their identity a little bit more, sometimes making fun of it, you know, sons of thunder because of their... Fiery tempers that they have, but we get a clear, a little clearer picture of Jesus' love and affection for these guys, and and his desire to be with them. These three that he gave nicknames to in the list would become his inner circle. We will see Peter and James and John accompanying Jesus and having questions with Jesus, sidebar conversations with him, um, separate from the others. So there's an inner circle, and Jesus in His relationships with them, He he moves toward them and He loves them naturally like we do. We move toward people and we love them. Some a little bit more clearly and a little bit more purely than others. Now we know that Jesus' love and affection and moving toward people is never driven by sin, but there's a pure level of love and differentiation of relationship even amongst this group of twelve. And we see here Jesus' agenda. Did you pick that up as we read through it? His agenda in contrast to the crowd and in contrast to the unclean spirits. Jesus' agenda for His disciples is twofold. That they might, one, be with Him, and two, that He might send them out as partners in ministry. So let's look at Jesus' agenda for this group of folks one point at a time. Jesus wanted to personally touch A few of these guys' lives. He wanted to personally touch them by being with them. Verse 14, And he appointed the twelve so that they might be with him. You see how intentionally personal this is. The first list of why Jesus called these twelve is simply to be with them. Now we remember in our Advent series that Jesus is named Emmanuel. He is God with us. God sends His Son down to earth to the creation to identify with the creation who has rebelled and gone astray. He sends a Savior to be with us, the people who need saving. And to identify with us. And as Jesus gathers a group of people around him, a small group of folks with whom he wants to spend some intentional time and pour into their lives. The first listed item on the agenda is to be with them. That they might be with him. His earthly ministry and his first priority would be to dwell with people to spend time with them. That's because the heart of discipleship is a personal relationship. The heart of discipleship begins with a personal relationship with God, the Creator, the one with whom we have a broken relationship because of sin. But in on the human level... Discipleship necessitates a human relationship. We need to know one another and love one another and spend time with one another because there's so much about the kingdom work that Jesus has entrusted to us that is caught by proximity and living life together more than formally taught. Oh, we must formally understand these doctrines, but in order to bring them in and apply them to our lives so that we live them out, We need people who are walking with with us through life whom we can observe and whom we can imitate. And Jesus brought these 12 into that level of relationship with Him so that they could be equipped to do the work that He has called them to do. He did not call these 12 to sit with Him in a classroom all day long or all semester long. He called them to walk the dusty roads with Him. He called them to listen to Him teach the crowds. He called them to hear Him explain the parables when they didn't first get it. And He called them to be in the boat with Him as He calmed the storm so that they might see a glimpse of His glory over the physical creation. And the problem with sin is that it results in a broken relationship with our Creator God. So Jesus comes and invites these guys as their reconciler into a relationship so that they can learn what it means to be in a reconciled relationship with their creator God. And he loves us so much that he would initiate relationship with us. Those who have rebelled against him, Jesus really, really loved his disciples. He longed to be with them He desired to be with them, and that's what He did. And He demonstrates that clearly. The level of love that He had for His disciples in His prayer recorded in John 17. We'll pick that up in verse 20. I think we have that. Jesus prays. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their word. See, Jesus is praying for His disciples here. But he is praying for more than that. He is praying for the next generation of believers who will come to faith in Christ through their word, who would then come proclaim the truth to others, to others and others until now here we are, the fruit of their ministry, generation after generation after generation. Jesus here is praying for you if you are in Christ. Jesus loved His disciples and He called them into close relationship. And here He prays for you and for me in the same way. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Do you hear the intimacy language there? I in you and you in me. Jesus is with His disciples and He prays that His disciples would know what it means to be in relationship in God and have Christ dwelling in them. Now, if you believe, you can have the assurance that Jesus loves you just like he loved his disciples and prayed for them. And if you are not in Christ, you might be tempted to say, well, maybe God doesn't love me. Or maybe if you are in Christ, you might be tempted to think that God doesn't love you because of your circumstances or because of lies that you've been told. But the fact is, Jesus does love you. And the testimony of the Word is that it is His will that none should perish. So Jesus does love you. He does love His disciples. And His offer for salvation is available. Even now. The Lord is not slow. He's patient. He's not willing that any should perish. That's what 2 Peter 3.9 says. So we also see the Apostle Paul engaging in this intentionally personal ministry. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8, we hear him say that we have become affectionately desirous of you, sharing with you not only the gospel, but our very lives. So real life discipleship starts with a personal relationship. And it requires a personal relationship. We see the agenda of Jesus is to personally attach their lives by being with them and twofold to send them out as partners in His ministry. Verse 14, so that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach. Jesus' agenda is co-missional. It's one where He invites His disciples to join with Him in ministry in accomplishing His mission. And that's exactly what we'll see them do in Mark chapter 6 and verse 12. Mark summarizes the ministry of these disciples in this way. He says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick, and He healed them. So the very things in the early chapters of Mark that we see Jesus doing Himself, we now see in the middle chapters of Mark, Jesus entrusting that level of ministry to His disciples. And they join Him as co-laborers in fulfilling His mission. And that is still going on today. We ourselves are called to be ministers of reconciliation. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Jesus calls these twelve into relationship with Him, that He might be with them and shape them And equip them in order to be co-laborers in fulfilling His mission. Jesus' agenda is co-missional. We're called to join Him in that. And it goes on to say, and to have authority to cast out demons. Secondly, Jesus' agenda is supernaturally missional. Jesus' agenda is co-missional and it is supernaturally missional. Jesus is the only one that these folks have seen having authority over the unclean spirits. And Jesus entrusts this same authority to His disciples. And that's what's at the head of the Great Commission recorded in Matthew 28. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. Go therefore and make disciples. There will be opposition. But all authority belongs to Jesus. And if we are in Christ, He entrusts that authority to us. And it's essential to what it means to be a Christian today is to be supernaturally missional because of what Paul tells us in Ephesians 6. He says, "...we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Gospel ministry is advancing an assault into enemy territory. When we go forth with the gospel of Jesus Christ and a move toward people who don't yet know Him as Lord and Savior, we are making an invasion into the enemy's territory. We are going back into His territory, the world, which God created, but which rebelled and turned against Him. And we are, we are going as God's ambassadors to reclaim that which is God's alone. And He empowers us through Christ to do just that. And we dare not take this lightly or engage in it flippantly. Certainly not in our own name or in our own strength. We must go in the name of and under the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we see this happening. Just within the last year, there was a young family here at Grace Fullerton whose young child was being terrorized by night terrors and could not sleep. And they discerned that it was time to call the elders and to have them come in and pray over the child. And we, the elders of Grace Fullerton, went to their home one night when the children were asleep And we silently walked into their bedroom and we prayed. We kneeled down and we asked the Lord to deliver this child from whatever was oppressing it. We prayed against the spiritual forces of darkness. No magical incantations. No wild flailing, screaming, yelling. None of that. It was a calm, reverent prayer. In Jesus' name, Asking him to exercise his authority over the unclean spirits and to free that child. And I rejoice to tell you that I touch base with the father of this child this week. And he says she still sleeps well through the night. Unclean spirits are still having their way in this world. We are still empowered by the one true God who has authority over these unclean spirits to conduct his ministry. To proclaim the gospel and to see people's faith established and to see it strengthened. And we can do so joyfully and effectively if we go in the power of the Holy Spirit under the authority of Jesus. We see here as we wrap up that the agenda of Jesus to personally touch the lives of these disciples by being with them. And to send them out as partners in his ministry actually results in... The fulfillment of the agendas of the unclean spirits, which was to make Jesus known, and the great crowd. Because it's through, through faith in the gospel, faith in the name of Jesus that people find their ultimate healing. So the crowd who clamored to Jesus to find physical healing, their agenda is fulfilled through faith in Jesus' name. And the demons who were shouting out that Jesus was the Son of God and making him known, their agenda is actually fulfilled. when Jesus has His way in our life, and we order our lives according to His plan and mission and agenda for our lives. We've thought about a lot today. We've seen the agenda of the crowd, we've seen the agenda of the unclean spirits. We've seen the agenda of Jesus, which is to be intensely and intentionally personal. He wants to spend time with you and with me. Are we making time available in our lives to do that? Are we setting aside time at the front or the end or the middle of our day or all throughout our day in order to spend time with Jesus? To read His Word, to meditate upon His Word, to spend time in humble prayer, expressing dependence on Him, to accomplish anything in His name. There are other ways that we can submit our wills to His, submit our agendas to His, and see Him have His way on this earth. I wonder to what degree do we realize that the time that we spend with Jesus is how He equips us to join us in His mission. It's how He equips us and strengthens our faith to be able to move toward people with gospel good in mind, to be able to proclaim the saving message of Jesus Christ to people who are hurting and lost, to be able to move toward people right here within our congregation and speak words of hope when they are facing trial after trial. It is only through spending time with Jesus that we can do this. It is only by allowing Jesus to personally touch our lives that then we can be used by Him to go out and touch others' lives. So let's spend some time in silence, examining our hearts, examining our minds, examining what our agenda is and to what degree our agenda for our lives is is lining up or dovetailing with Jesus' agenda for our lives. Spend a couple minutes in silence, searching your heart, And I'll close us in prayer in a moment. Father, we marvel at your wisdom at sending your Son. We marvel at his demonstration of love for these disciples and these apostles whom he ended up sending out to join him in ministry. And through their ministry, we have come to faith. And now you're entrusting to us this same ministry giving us the the privilege of joining you in that. Lord, we want to be with you. What a privilege it is. Would Would you help us? Would you forgive us for how frequently I go through my day seeking to advance my agenda rather than to advance yours? Would you help us, I pray, each one of us? You know where we're prone to have success, where we're prone to fail. Help each one of us, I pray, to rest in you to find hope in you, and to find direction for our lives in you. I pray that we would all surrender our wills to you and that you'd be pleased to use us to advance your kingdom plan and purposes so that as grace extends to more and more people, thanksgiving would increase to the glory of you, our great God, in whose matchless name we pray. Amen.